0: Welcome, everyone, to an edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. I'm going to do something a little different today. Normally, we do talk about things such as oh, civil government, modern issues with regard to law or public policy. And recently, we've talked about things such as uh, school choice or, or going into debt, Um immigration, things like that. But what I want to look at is really the topic of the kingdom of God, which I've had some discussions about recently with several folks, and certainly, at least among uh, Christians, this is a pretty important topic because, I mean, it's God's kingdom, right? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does that look like, especially um, as we see the world kind of going towards a more secular, uh, anti-God perspective, what, what can be said regarding God's kingdom? Is it here? Is it still around? Is it all entirely future? Is it all entirely in the past? Or is it right now in some way? But before we go into that, I want to begin with our typical law of the day. Now, this one has a special place in my heart because it is one of the keys to... Uh, understanding and unlocking uh, and applying all of the Old Testament laws to today. Because this law is explicitly discussed in the New Testament. So the New Testament can give us guidance on how to understand the Old Testament law. And the law is Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And it says this, You shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, I may have covered this law In the past in previous episodes, but I think it's worth going over again. Uh, Just going through a real brief explanation, this law has typically been understood to be a civil law. So for those of you who are familiar with the uh, Reformed tradition um, throughout much of church history, uh, the law was kind of divided up into three categories, essentially a moral law, those things that remain applicable to all times and cultures and peoples in uh, every age, and it remains, you know, enforced today. Don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery, things like that. Then there is what we would call the ceremonial laws, laws that had to do with worshiping in the temple, being clean, offering sacrifices, uh, things like that. And then there is the civil law, which basically are those laws that relate to Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and how the people were to interact with each other and with the nations around them. So the problem, I've had many discussions about this, and I've read, I'm trying to read more and more books about it, but the problem that I see that uh, this three-category distinction is not easy. And it is a man made distinction because if you go throughout your Old Testament and try to highlight each law color coded based on civil, ceremony, or moral, you're going to have a hard time of it. The best example I can think of is the Sabbath laws. So, honoring the Sabbath is the fourth commandment. And typically, people argue that, well, all ten commandments, those are the moral laws. Aside from the moral aspect of the law there's also the civil aspect because it it has to do with the people of Israel interacting with each other an example would be every sabbath year slaves Hebrew slaves were to be set free okay so and then the year of jubilee is also part of the sabbath laws so the sabbath laws had to do with even even agricultural items you know on the on the seventh year they are to let the Land rest. So there's certainly a civil aspect to it, and a ceremonial one as well, regarding certain feasts and festivals, and uh, tithes and offerings and sacrifices uh, on certain Sabbaths. So Sabbath laws are not easy to distinguish in their three categories, in those uh, three man made categories. Now, this law from Deuteronomy about muzzling an ox would clearly fit under the civil law. Uh, it's not one of the Ten Commandments. It has nothing really to do with with worship in the temple, but it has to do with animal husbandry, how to treat your animals. Now, one other thing to keep in mind, all the laws in the Old Testament, aside from the Ten Commandments, are case laws. So you have the Ten Commandments, those are the big ten, and then every other law is an example or a case law. It serves as simply a highlighting principle. The principle here for Israel is that when their oxen, are treading or, or walking, doing labor. Essentially, they would be pulling some kind of equipment to tread out the grain in order to prepare the grain for you know, consumption or distribution, selling, things like that. Now, as the ox is going around in the circle or going around in its little yard doing this, um, they would get hungry, and the ox would sometimes munch on the, on the grain. Now, to muzzle the ox was essentially an act of cruelty because you're preventing the ox from eating while it is working. And you're doing so to maximize your profits and to squeeze every ounce of money and labor that you can without taking even any chance of losing anything. And it's a a very stingy, greedy way of functioning. And so people would be tempted to just muzzle their oxen that would stop them from eating. And uh, God says, no, you're not to do that. That's a that's a wicked thing. You are not to muzzle the, the ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, like I said, it's case law, so it's not just about oxen, okay? It would also be about any animal that's doing labor for the people of Israel. The, those animals, and I'll say people who are engaged in labor, should be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor, even as they are laboring for others. And it applies to both animals and humans. Let me show you how that is the case. Paul, the apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me turn there real briefly, he directly quotes this law with regard to the paying of ministers and pastors. So here's what he says I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verses, we'll we'll just start in verse 1, because I think it's important to get the context here. Verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not even we more? All right, that's that's our passage today that really relates to uh, this law regarding muzzling an ox. Now, basically, Paul's argument is that pastors should not be having to you know, do other labor, uh, other work. Uh, someone like, like Paul, you know, who, who made tents on the side to basically provide for himself and, and feed himself, uh, he's basically admonishing the Corinthians and saying, you know, you guys should be supporting the ministers. We're doing spiritual work. The least you could do is provide for our physical needs. Um, And he quotes that law regarding muzzling an ox. And essentially the point there is that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and others should be able to receive something for their labor that they're doing. Um, And he even says explicitly that that law was written for their sake. So the law Given to ancient Israel in the Old Covenant, Paul says that law is applicable and is written for the Corinthian church made up mostly of Gentiles under the New Covenant and that it applies to paying your ministers. And so here we see how to understand the Old Testament law and apply it to the New Testament because Paul gives us an example of how to do that. And essentially, you take the principle that was already there, the principle was always there of allowing those who labor to partake of and enjoy the fruits of their labor while they're working. And he simply carries that on to the payment of ministers and pastors. And the law, therefore, remains applicable to this very day. If we, as modern-day Christians, if we owned oxen, You know, we were just farming, and we decided to not use tractors, and we just uh, used oxen for whatever reason, and if we use them to tread out the grain, it would be a sin for me to muzzle that ox in order to maximize my profits and basically be cruel to that animal. So the law is very much applicable, even in its exact form, if we just happen to use oxen. So to squeeze every drop of profit out of something or someone who is laboring for you is a sin. And God condemns it. The Apostle Paul condemns it, at least with regard to the paying of ministers. Now, there's other modern examples in which this law would apply. So let let me give you a couple. Let's say that a group of people are harvesting fruits on an orchard for the farmer. And these fruits would be sold in the market could be apples or strawberries or whatever. Those who are harvesting should be able to enjoy eating some of the strawberries and the apples during the heat of the day while they're laboring. It would be wrong for the owner of the orchard to basically prohibit any worker from taking even a bite out of a strawberry or an apple, basically because of greed and stinginess. Um, another example might be that, you know, restaurant workers being able to get a couple free meals at a, at a restaurant that they work for, or maybe even a, a corporation uh, just providing some of the services for the employees or even stock options for investment purposes. They, they get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Another modern example that I found very interesting was the Guinness family who made the, the beer Guinness in Ireland. And Guinness, uh, the, the family, they provided two pints of beer a day to all the workers, and, and many other things as well, not just that. But that's an example of a very godly and God-honoring way of treating your workers. So God's law is fully valid, even in the New Testament. And this is a civil law, so it's very much applicable today and the New Testament guides us in applying it. But the law is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us, to grow us. The problem with the Pharisees at the time of Jesus is that they thought obedience to the law would make them right with God, that they could do it themselves. And they were also adding traditions onto the law. So they were doing a lot of things bad regarding the law. But the but the point is, is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. But you know, once you're saved, how do you live? You live in accordance with God's law. You love his law. You don't hate it. You don't you don't find some other law to follow. You love God's law and you seek to live it out. You look at the laws, even the civil ones about muzzling oxen, and you see how that is how that applies to you as a parent or as a business owner, as a farmer, or as a pastor. And that's how it's to be done. So, that is essentially the law of the day that I wanted to cover. Hopefully that was uh, useful to you, helpful to you. Please, again, you know, read through 1 Corinthians 9 and let that be the template or the pattern that you use to apply all the laws of the Old Testament. So now, the topic of the day today, going to the kingdom of God. So, you know why should we why should we care about this topic? And there's a lot to there's a lot to cover, and I'm not going to cover it all today. I just kind of want to look at uh, several aspects of it. I've been trying to do a a study of the kingdom, just looking through all the passages of the New Testament that refer to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, because they're they're synonymous. Uh, the, the Jews at the time of Christ didn't really want to use God's name, so so they would use kingdom of heaven to also refer to the same thing, kingdom of God. So they're they're the same thing. Now, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament. Um, there's plenty of passages you could you could look at. Uh, for one, um, the Book of Daniel has several passages. For example, one is Daniel chapter two. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had regarding the statue, and Daniel and, and Daniel chapter two mentions how there's a stone that is. Uh, not made by human hands, and the stone smashes the statue, and then it grows into a mountain and fills the whole earth, and that is the everlasting, Daniel says, that's the everlasting kingdom or the kingdom that will have no end. And then in Daniel 7 is another example where uh, Daniel talks about the Son of Man, the Son of Man coming in the clouds and establishing his kingdom and his power, inaugurated by the Holy One, uh, the Messiah or the Son of Man. So, and then Obadiah, a uh, kind of a minor prophet, also has a whole section on it in Obadiah chapter 1, talking about the kingdom of God basically being the perfect and total reign and rule of God, the conquest of all of God's enemies, and, uh, you know, as, as well, the enemies of Israel. I mean, the enemies of God are the enemies of Israel, so long as Israel is in submission to God. Now, when we move to the New Testament, by the time of Christ, the Jewish people, including the disciples, they understood God's kingdom to be primarily political and military, especially since they are under the authority of Rome, a very strong military empire. And so the Jewish people are, are really focusing on that aspect of things, kind of a an earthly, political, sword, conquest kind of kingdom. And... Oftentimes, throughout the Gospels, the disciples would bicker with each other over what position they would hold. I mean, just an example would be Luke chapter 9, where the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest, or who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus corrects them and basically says their heart's in the wrong place. They're kind of lording it over like the Gentiles do, but they need to be servants and have a humble and servant-like attitude. And that's what it means to be truly great. And even after the resurrection of Christ, in the book of Acts, when he's about ready to ascend to heaven, uh, the disciples ask, you know, Lord, is it now, is it now time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus gives a cryptic answer. He doesn't say yes or no, but he does say that power will come upon you, and you will go to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Okay, basically proclaiming the gospel. So there's that ripple effect. And that seems to kind of answer the question, but maybe not the same the answer that the disciples were expecting. So we need to look at what is the kingdom of God? What does the Bible have to say about it? And it's kind of useful, although you got to be careful, but it's very useful to gather up all the passages referring to the kingdom and kind of just line them up and, and organize them and and just look at what is it about. So I'm not going to read every single passage. I just have a a brief bullet. i'll'll I'll, I'll reference them so please read them on your own I might read a, I might read a couple here and there uh, because there are some very very powerful ones but for example first question maybe that maybe to ask is when does this kingdom begin well in matthew chapter 4 verse 17 uh, it is said that the kingdom is at hand and jesus used that language like the kingdom of god is at hand and he's basically saying repent Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's also Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. So both John the Baptist and Jesus were saying the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. Um, Jesus even mentions in Matthew chapter 12 that if he's casting out demons, if exorcisms are, are taking place and people are being set free spiritually from demonic possession, he says, then the kingdom of God has come. In book of Hebrews, chapter 12, uh, it, it speaks of believers ha- as, as already having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus talks about, in Matthew chapter 11, how the kingdom of God suffered violence from the time of John the Baptist until the time of Jesus, and that people were trying to force their way into it, and he's referring to the Pharisees and the scribes, essentially. He talks about how the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be seen, but is among us. That's Luke chapter 17. He speaks of some of the disciples will not die before seeing the kingdom coming with power, Mark chapter 9. And then in Luke 21, he says, the current generation will not pass away before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, so that's like, when does it begin, right? And and there seems to be an already not yet kind of thing. Like, it's here, it's at hand, um, but there's some aspects that are, that are not yet, so we'll have to do some more studying into what exactly that means. Now, how does one enter or see this kingdom, right? Kingdoms, you know, they have, they have boundaries, right? You know, the Roman Empire has a specific territory of land, and the disciples would have understood kingdoms of having physical land. So, uh, how do you get into it? How, how do you get citizenship into the kingdom? And Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, those who are born again can see and enter the kingdom of God. Colossians 1, believers have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. Uh, the parables are, are so many parables about the kingdom. It's like a wedding feast, right? In Matthew 22, all these folks are invited. Uh, some come to the wedding, uh, but but then those only with the right clothing are, are allowed to stay, and the rest are cast out into outer darkness. It's like a vineyard of workers who are hired throughout the day. You know, it's the beginning of the day, and then the ninth hour, twelfth hour, da-da-da-da-da. And then at the end, everyone receives their payment. Um, also, uh, the sexually immoral, the covetous, the wicked... The unrighteous will not enter the kingdom. Ephesians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, those doing the works of the flesh will not enter. Galatians chapter 5, um, Jesus says it's better to enter the kingdom missing an eye than to be cast into hell with both eyes. Um, Mark 9. And then Matthew 13, it's like a treasure that someone will sacrifice everything to attain or the pearl of great price, right? In In Matthew 13, it belongs to the persecuted and to the poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5. To enter it, those who want to enter it or see it must have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. Okay, Matthew 5 again. And then in the end of Matthew 5, uh, chapter 21, Jesus talks about how the kingdom was taken from the Pharisees and the scribes and given to those who are repentant. All right, so that's how it seems like the theme here is you, you don't enter it physically. You enter it spiritually with being born again. It's a spiritual kingdom, not of the flesh, but of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And it, it definitely does not involve wickedness. Now, what is a kingdom like? Let me give a, let me read this passage because it's a very uh, powerful one. Matthew chapter 5. He says this in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you have here the idea that, you know, those who are who are great in the kingdom of heaven, they're doing God's law and they're teaching others to do to do God's law. They're not relaxing God's law or causing others to stumble. And also in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about those who are humble, those who are quick to forgive, are the greatest in the kingdom. Another important passage that helps us to really understand uh, the timeline or the nature of this kingdom is Luke chapter 18, where this is where the rich young ruler comes and asks about being saved, and then Jesus ends up telling him to uh, sell all he has, give it to the poor, and come follow him. And then we see in verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 26, those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter responds, he says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So there we get kind of a dichotomy. Jesus is breaking the timeline into two parts, this age, this time, and the age to come. And he's saying those who sacrifice all for the kingdom will get get blessings in both this life and the life to come. Now, what does that mean then? That means that in a sense the kingdom's already here, but it's also not yet. Let's continue. Uh, it's uh, it's like a field that grows both wheat and weeds at the same time. The parable of the tares, right? They grow together. At the end, the harvest comes. Or it's like a mustard seed that starts out small, grows to fill up and become a huge tree. Or it's like leaven in Matthew 13. Leaven that works its way slowly through the whole loaf until the whole thing is, is leavened. Another key passage that helps us understand the nature of the kingdom is Romans 14, where Paul says... 4, uh, 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. So there you get some really important uh, uh, information there. Because, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, those are the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul says the kingdom of God is, is not about eating and drinking. It's not that kind of kingdom. It's about righteousness, joy, peace in the Spirit. So it's very much tied to salvation. It's very much tied to becoming a Christian, growing in the Lord and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Again, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 13 that the, the word of the kingdom is the gospel. He actually uses the phrase, the word of the kingdom. In Revelation chapter 1, it's the kingdom of priests. And John chapter 18, where Jesus says that the kingdom of God or or God's people are in the world but not of it. Um, In fact, that's when he says to Pontius Pilate, when Pilate says, are you you really a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my people would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world realm. So it doesn't mean that the kingdom's not here or that it's not present, but it's not the same type of kingdom that someone like Pilate is looking for, all right? And another thing is that the disciples can bind and loosen the kingdom. Jesus gives them the keys to the kingdom in Matthew 16 where they can bind and loose basically the context of church discipline, all right? So, So these are some really important aspects of the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God, Now, what about the end? When will the kingdom completely take over or completely be uh, finalized or consummated? Like, when is it over? And Jesus says several times in Matthew 13, the parable of the fish, there will be a sorting of the good fish and the bad fish at the end. Or Matthew 25, the king will sort out the righteous from the unrighteous. Um, And at the end of the world, Jesus will drink wine again with the disciples. In Matthew 26, when he inaugurates the Lord's Supper, he says, I will not drink of this with you again until we're in the kingdom. Um, He says the gospel is to be preached till the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. The kingdom will come. 1 Corinthians 15 is another key passage, because that passage talks about Jesus is to put all enemies under his feet, and then... The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and actually, I think it's really worth reading here. So I'm just going to quickly turn to that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, All right, let's see. Ah, here we go, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. For uh, uh, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So, the idea there, again, being that Jesus is going to reign until even death itself is conquered, then he hands it over to the Father complete. So and there's still other passages about the kingdom, but these are some of the key passages that I wanted to bring out to kind of really get our minds focused on what is the kingdom about. And and I, I, I do think, and I'm going to spend more time in the next episode on some of the implications, uh, conclusions, and kind of the so-what-now-what kind of thing regarding the kingdom, because I do think a lot of Christians misunderstand the kingdom. They think of it entirely future, entirely physical, especially the the folks who hold to premillennialism and the rapture, the idea that the kingdom is a physical kingdom, with Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, reigning for a literal 1,000 years, and it's a physical kingdom. And I think that's a little skewed perspective. I think it's misunderstanding a lot of what we see in Scripture. We see a lot of it's, it's here, but not yet. It's already, but not yet. It's here. There are some aspects that are now. There's blessings now, but there's some to be to, yet to come. It's not about eating and drinking. It's not that kind of a kingdom, not a military or political kingdom. It's about the fruit of the Spirit. It's about righteousness. It's entered by repentance. By faith. That's citizenship in the kingdom. Okay. And Jesus even says when he rose again that all authority on heaven and earth had been given to him already. He's already reigning and ruling. Okay. All authority, every single authority on heaven and on earth has already been given to Jesus. And that's why we can go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. So if he's reigning and ruling right now, what does that mean then with, with regards to 1 Corinthians 15 about he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last one is death. And then the end. Then it's over. So uh, these are some things we need to keep in mind and and not be tempted, as the disciples were, to fall into the, the traditional view of kingdoms, being like the Roman Empire, the Persians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, or whatever the case may be. So anyways, we'll look more at that, uh, some of the implications next time. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, If you have any questions, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go to Facebook and look up Governed by God. Um, You can also go to my website, ericloophole.com, and there's links there to the episode and to podcasts. Uh, So again, thank you for your time. Until next time, take care and God bless.